0: There's been this sort of like gradual awakening to the importance and value of public space where we're understanding like, oh, hey, maybe we can use streets for a little bit more than parking cars. Maybe this park here is doing more than just like a luxury. This is fundamental to our well-being.
1: Hello, and welcome to Shared Space, a podcast about the power of architecture and design to make us healthier, happier, and more connected. I'm your host, Erin Peavy, and I'm so happy to have you with us. Today, I'm talking with senior urban planner, lecturer, and leader, Mitchell Reardon. Mitchell helps to lead the projects at Happy City, an urban planning and design consultancy that uses the science of well-being to create healthier, happier, and more inclusive communities. No wonder I couldn't wait to talk to him. They have some amazing resources on their website. There's some great research and even a book out with the same name. So seriously, go and check them out. Uh, Mitchell's work has taken him all across the globe, and he lives currently in Vancouver, Canada. Mitchell, I am so happy to have you. Welcome to Shared Space.
0: Thank you so much for having me and What a lovely intro, and it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs>
1: uh, I thought that maybe we could start, um, take us in the way back machine, and maybe you could share your earliest memories of realizing that the built environment existed and the impact that it can have on people.
0: It's it's a really good question to start with. and It's nice to kind of take take a, a, <laughs> a, a swing back to pre-COVID times. I think probably my earliest understanding of this would probably have been in riding my bicycle with my sister when we were probably like, you know, eight or 10 years old. And like just at the age where your parents started to let you ride on your own. Yeah. And, and like being directed, like you can ride on this street, but not that street based on how busy it was. Yeah, and so yeah. I'm kind of getting a sense that some streets were safer for us than others, largely mm-hmm. due to the presence of fast-moving cars.
1: <laughs> That's awesome, cool. So, talk a little bit about your path to get to where you are today and your current role at Happy City.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a bit of a meandering path, and I think probably <laughs> a few years after you know that bicycle awakening. It was first really through snowboarding that I started to think about cities deeply. I, I used to be heavily involved in that and yeah. I had the great fortune of traveling around quite a lot for it and filming oh, cool. video parts. Um, and so we go to different cities and you'd be looking at the built environment to to find features to ride. And like, if there were hills and public buildings or schools, like it didn't matter if it was July or January, I was thinking, okay, there's stuff around here, let's find it. And it took a while to really put that back together, but it meant that I was like constantly analyzing the built environment from when I was like maybe 16, just thinking about snowboarding. And the first urban planning course I took was the worst urban planning course. I took. <laughs> oh it was so theoretical. It had no application. The teacher didn't really like discussion, but there were about four of us in the class that we'd walk home together, and we lived uh-huh. in this fascinating place where we could point out what was going on, like, oh, that like little Korean. Uh, grocer is closed and they're redeveloping that whole block that uh, looks like it would be gentrification. Um, yeah. Oh, some of our neighbors live in um, social housing and a couple of blocks down or a block down, uh, we have a couple of mansions. We have this very mixed neighborhood and, you know, yeah. having community events that navigated that was always very interesting. From there, I think I'll learn as much in the street as I will in any classroom, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had the really good fortune of getting accepted to a master's program in planning uh, at Stockholm University. Mm -hmm. And I went there years later, I guess, so six years ago now, I moved back to Vancouver was doing quite a bit of tactical urbanism and all sorts of things.
1: And for Uh, anyone that's not familiar with the term tactical urbanism, like explain to the lay people what that means.
0: Oh, absolutely. That's a great point. It's a really broad concept. Basically, it's, you know, light, quick and cheap ways to make the streets and and public spaces a little bit better. There's all sorts of examples. And and really, it's adding seating using pallets or another cost-effective material or uh, putting paint down in a uh, former parking lot to make it a little bit friendlier for people to be in. It's about addressing the needs of the community in a very direct way. But yeah, so anyway, I I was back in Vancouver just doing everything I could to... to make interesting projects with interesting people happen. And um, through that was very fortunate to be connected with Charles Montgomery, the founder of Happy City and the author of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started to work together a little bit and over the last few years, um, we've been fortunate to grow as, uh, as a firm. And um, that has been a pretty central part of my life for the last uh, four or five years now.
1: I think that you guys do a beautiful job of talking about design for social connection, and in preparing for this interview, I I recently heard an interview that you gave, and you said COVID has underlined that we are social creatures, and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, so true, and I'd love to hear sort of why designing for social well-being is important, um, what you kind of meant by that, what were, yeah, maybe you could just talk about that.
0: We've been designing for speed, efficiency, and economic return, and that hasn't worked out for that many people. Um, so we we need to find a different way. And and you know, as you're saying here, we are social creatures. Um, and yet, for decades, city planning has uh, sought to divide us. We're just trying to knit this back together. And yeah, I mean, COVID has really underlined just how critical that connection is.
1: You know, I think that one of the very few silver linings is that it's just felt like for so many years we were just trying to get the conversation to even be able to happen to even be able to talk about loneliness or maybe the importance of social relationships in what feels like what you're talking about throughout all of our spaces but also just sort of like what feels like the hierarchy of the American spirit is like okay well you know we need to get the job done and be, be financially profitable but I think that in doing that we've missed what it means to be human. And I think that I'm really excited. Um, one of the things I'm so excited about you guys' work is that I think it honors that human spirit and helps to show how that it can also be economically viable and do all of those other things. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I feel like the automotive industry did a really good job of linking what it was doing to like its framing of the American spirit, You know, framing it as independent and all of that. But I've been pretty fortunate to work in a number of places in the United States. And, you know, that sense of community is something that comes through so frequently. I think we're seeing now just how important it is to have spaces to interact with people who aren't exactly the same as us, so that we can get a a very, like, the start of an understanding with each other where, where that's possible. And we can't do that from inside our cars or frequently from our computers. Yes.
1: And so, you know, that's a great segue. Like, let's talk about what is it about the public realm That you see as being able to transform that?
0: So, there's like a whole bunch to unpack here. Um, There's like the design side where, you know, we, we need to design so that everybody can access the spaces, ensuring that if you're using a wheelchair or pushing a stroller or using a walker, that you're able to get into the space. There's also, you know, how that space is programmed and I'll say monitored or surveyed, where like, Everything this year has really underlined, and especially since the murder of George Floyd, has underlined that the the use of space is not equal among all people. So this isn't only a design question. And so understanding how we can make spaces that work for everybody to feel comfortable or that work better for groups who have typically not felt comfortable is gonna be really, really critical. And that's focusing a lot on you know, black and indigenous and people of color feeling comfortable in these spaces. I think at like a fundamental level, Having the ability to share a space with people who don't look like you and who may not have the same beliefs of you as you is is a super important thing in itself. You don't need to have a direct interaction to notice that, like, oh, that extended family um, at the table next to you is having, you know, some sort of like celebration as a family, something that you might not have done in public, but now you've seen that. So These are some of the fundamental pieces that uh, cities play or that public spaces play in, uh, in why they're important for social connection. And the last piece is like, you know, you can have big and small spaces and they all have value, especially in densifying cities, having these small spaces that, you know, help people who live, you know, in two tall buildings next to each other or even within the same building to interact it is really important. So there's all sorts of spaces that are serving different purposes, um, but ensuring that we have them is like a, a baseline, and and then figuring out how we can program and design them to support inclusivity is is really where it goes from there.
1: Oh, very well said. I think a lot of times we forget you need something to be able to discuss, to share, to to spur. Almost like, you know, getting stuck in line with someone. Um, I love some of the examples of research that looks at even connections, for instance, that happen um, at daycares where it's like, well, everybody has to wait for their kids in the same space. And it's like, it's this frequency of seeing one another and kind of doing nothing. I think that's one of the things that drives me a little insane about the phone is I'm like, we need the doing nothing to have the ability to be open to connect
0: a great point that space for nothing is so key you know we um are approached on a pretty regular basis by developers um who are looking to build you know the happiest place for you know insert city or country name and frequently they have a pretty big tech component and one of the things that we advocate for in pretty much every case is to have a wi-fi free or like digital free zone and and it's really hard to sell them on that sometimes (laughs) but you need to unplug
1: What is one of the best examples you've seen of design for connection? Can you sort of like tell us an example of of
0: that? So Happy City has always been, you know, really curious about how the uh, built environment influences the way we interact with each other. And um, in addition to a ton of um, research that was conducted for the book and looking at a lot of the great academic uh, material that was already available, we love to do things out in the street. And so a few years ago, we were in Seattle, conducting an experiment called the Lost Tourists mm-hmm. and in Capitol Hill neighborhood. We took two streets with, with pretty different built environments. We were really curious to understand how having, you know, lots of small shops and cafes, what like urbanists might call an active edge, influences the way people feel compared to having like a long blank wall. So same neighborhood, very similar arrangements, and basically we had volunteers go out and um, pretend to be lost tourists and your your goal was just to look so lost that people (laughs) took pity on you to help. So step one, you stand there with a map, maybe that map is upside down, um, and you just try to look so helpless that somebody stops. (laughs) If they stop, then you ask, like, oh, can you, um, you know, I'm really trying to get here, I can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. I'd love to, can I I borrow your phone? Mine is dead. Um, Mm -hmm. Call my friend. And if you manage to get through that, then you said like, look, They kind of told me, but I'm still confused. Could you just take me there?
1: For instance, what's an example of where we probably don't even realize that are giant long blank walls right now?
0: When we talk about blank walls, um, in this case, it was a long concrete, gray concrete wall um, on the edge of a warehouse.
1: Mm -hmm. And I would say I've seen others that like, they may not be quite that bad. And I think it may be a different experiment that are, it's just sort of like a big box store even if it kind of looks like it's trying to be
0: pedestrian it's failing yeah absolutely that's a really good point because like whole foods and banks food <laughs> all the time long glass walls with no no uh, no way to see through them um, so yeah it, it's a contemporary thing as well yeah so yeah we had the the tourists at these spots and yeah. Um, so people were yeah. Yeah, people were four times more likely to stop at the um, active edge where you had these small shops and cafes than, mm-hmm. you know, next to this warehouse with a long blank wall. Um, four nobody, times. Four times. Nobody mm-hmm. at the blank wall was willing to lend their phone. Like, <laughs> would you steal that? Yeah. And... <laughs> And then um, I think it was like about 10% said, yeah, I'll take you to the park when they uh-huh. were at Active Edge compared to like one or 2% at the, wow. uh, almost nobody at the, at the uh, blank wall was willing to to come with them. So basically it's yeah. not step one. Um, but the really striking thing was that one of our lost tourists at the mm-hmm. uh, Active Edge was mm-hmm. taken to the park where they were to meet their friend and then asked out on a date. So, not only was it supporting sociability but it was supporting romance in the built environment
1: (laughs) i love that and like it to me you guys did such a beautiful job of like tapping into you know one of the token questions is like do you think somebody would return your wallet here and it's like it's sort of a twist on that because it's about like how the built environment fosters trust and i don't even think i don't I think people connect those two like does your built environment make you trust your neighbors more or less does it make you trust your you know fellow citizens more or less I think that's a beautiful example okay so what's the other
0: one there's also like the programming and processes that go into it Um, we were working in Europe last year and we were working just outside a major city in one of like the kind of mid-level suburbs the Mm -hmm. mid-level We're working in a suburb of a major European <laughs> city. The client had asked us, like, you know, we see that walking rates are really low in this neighborhood, and we're not sure why. Um, we'd like you to, to put in some uh, interventions here, um, some some nice activations to yeah. encourage people to walk. Mm-hmm. And this happened to coincide with a, a there was a conference coming up, and they, I think we're looking forward to showing something off. And so. This neighborhood was, uh, there was a large share of people from North Africa, from Turkey, from the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, not too many long-term European residents, like a couple of generations at the kind of most. Yeah, We were really fortunate to spend a lot of time in the neighborhood. We do what we call this embedded engagement, where we'll work out of community offices for a few weeks, just trying to get a sense of the flow of what's going on. And yeah. start to build those initial connections. And and in talking with people, they're saying like, well, no, it's not like we don't not walk because because like there's no nice activations along the way. We yeah. don't really have anywhere to walk to. And youth were saying, like, well, whenever we hang out on the street, people call the police on us. Through these conversations, we realized like you don't need an activation or like some some little, you know, paint on the yeah. street. What you need is, you know, programs that are actually going to uh, allow you to, to do things that might take you off the street. Um, you might have covered spaces because Western Europe gets a lot oh, of rain. So we spent a lot of time just working with them, building bridges between the community and the client to come up with this, basically this whole plan, this process about how the community needs could be better met. And yeah. so in this case, we actually had to convince the client that we didn't want to do design, at least not right away. Yeah. Uh, and in doing so, we were able to build this stronger connection. They now have an indoor space in this neighborhood for uh, kids and youth to drop into when it's you know when the weather isn't so nice. Yeah. And so in the end, design convincing people not to do design was enough to start building trust in a neighborhood where yeah. there wasn't a lot of trust with authorities.
1: I love that. I love that example. One of the things that I, I had heard you say in the past that I totally wanted to dig into that I think that that's a great example of is, it said, like at Happy City, design is about 20% of our work. It's the process that leads into that that we put a huge effort on. And it's like, yeah, is there anything else you want to say about sort of that topic around the process?
0: Yeah, thanks for raising this. Cause I think it's it's something that on the one hand, people are are becoming more aware of how important a thorough process is to achieving outcomes that are going to work for a community. On the other hand, you go on Instagram and see these like beautiful renders and outcomes and you have a lot of like leadership folks who are like, I want that. And I don't think in, in 2020 with all of the digital tools we have available and all mm-hmm. the materials we have access to, it's particularly difficult to build something that is like, you know, beautiful, like yeah. traditional. <laughs> it's a lot harder to design and build things that actually work for the people who, who would like to, to, to meet the needs of. And yeah, so with happy city, like engagement is central to our design process. It's probably the biggest piece mm-hmm. um, understanding, you know, who's in the community, you know, what kind of good work is already being done, yeah. then doing the engagement pieces. Those, those are where we spend the most time.
1: Yeah.
0: And, and it's kind of funny because people, you know, come to happy city and they're expecting like, you know, a 40 story slide or some like, you know, very humorous, fun thing. Yeah. And then they're like kind of disappointed when we're like, well, we're going to do this very rigorous process and like, we'll see what comes from it. At Happy City, we've developed um, this public life study methodology. And when we say public life, we're referring to basically, you know, how people are uh, acting and feeling in a shared space. And then like, you know, in this case, for Streets for People, the pace at which they had sought to get the interventions out to support well-being meant that they were already in place by the time we were involved. And so for those, we try to use what we call control sites. So very similar uh, built environment nearby so it's the same like neighborhood population that would be using it similar rates of traffic pedestrians all of those things we try to make equal comparisons and then we um, conduct observations so we're looking at like you know how are people moving through the site like walking cycling rolling other things and what behaviors are they um, doing if they're lingering in these sites yeah Um, so you know there's like staying or or moving but then there's also like are they laughing are they on their phone a lot of the other pieces that can help to give us an indication whether this is supporting sociability whether it gives a sense of comfort or trust So we combine the observation component with these subjective well-being intercepts where we are asking people um, about say 10 questions and then a handful of demographic questions to um, understand how they're feeling in the site so these aren't opinion questions about how you feel right now
1: so you know I think some of the reports that you had given me a sneak peek on around COVID, you know, COVID has changed everything, right? And it's changed the way that we socially connect and this focus on more distance, more use of outdoor spaces. Like, how do you think this pandemic has changed the way that people think about their built environments?
0: Certainly, yeah. There's been this sort of like gradual awakening to the importance and value of public space. Yeah. Um, where we're understanding like, oh, hey, maybe we can use um, streets for a little bit more than parking cars. Maybe this park here is doing more than just like a luxury. This yeah. this is actually fundamental to our well-being. That's been, I think, a positive piece that has emerged here. Also just the rec- recognition of how these spaces are used differently by different people and, and what is allowed versus what isn't based a lot on your identity. There's much deeper awareness of uh, the fact that a space can work very differently based on your gender or race or level of accessibility. Yeah.
1: One of the questions I wanna I keep forgetting to um pose, but like I'm like, dear Canadian, you are the perfect person to ask this question to. What about winter? Because I think like so many of your examples were amazing, but they're also like during summer there where it's pretty gosh darn beautiful and i I keep having people be like yes but how can public space adapt to still have social connection in the winter like have have you guys put any thought into that what are you seeing
0: yeah we put a lot of thought into that um it's actually a case where like i think it's easier when there's snow than rain so (laughs) vancouver is really hard because we get so much rain and you know The environment that you create in the rain, like, yeah, okay, you can get some cover. And that's one thing I think that's been underlined with COVID is just how important um, weatherproof shared spaces are. Um, But when I look, you know, at Canada and elsewhere, I look at cities like Montreal, Quebec City. Edmonton and Winnipeg who've really embraced their winter culture they're far colder than Vancouver but they've embraced winter and like you know they have um ice sculptures and uh uh, like long skating rinks natural or human made Mm -hmm. Uh, they find ways to, to to really highlight this and um you know it's it's the holiday season, and uh, look a little further abroad at, um, you know, Vienna and Copenhagen mm-hmm. and other cities in Europe that have these fantastic, or typically, I don't know what they're doing this year, but typically have these great Christmas markets as well. Yeah. And so there are ways to embrace it. it. It takes a bit of a mindset shift, and then also just like fun activities. Because there's this this pretty great Swedish expression that there's no bad weather, only bad clothing. <laughs> I love that. If, you, if you give people an invitation and a good reason to be out there, I think a lot of them will take it. Yes. Yeah. The, the the other really critical thing with winter, um, and so one thing we're not dealing with in Vancouver, but that we see elsewhere is with snow, making sure that your sidewalks are clear. Um, yeah. If if you're using a wheelchair or um, pushing a walker, it's really hard to move if there's even a half inch of uh, snow yeah. on the ground. And so making sure that it's easy to move is a really critical piece to ensuring that this these spaces are accessible to an array of people.
1: Right. I, I think this question around what is the role of public policy in designing happy, healthy cities, but also like what can people do? Just average people do to like get involved in in helping?
0: Yeah, those things might actually come together quite well. Um, one thing I think that cities can do, especially when in regards to the public realm and, and like you know neighborhood well being, is making space for residents to be able to contribute. That can be you know having small grants available, even like micro grants of five hundred dollars, you know, to say turn a um, uh, that little green space between the sidewalk and the street into a garden, enabling people to to use these ideas really well and, and making it super easy to participate, like to, to get involved in that kind of thing. Like no jargon, um, you know, a safe, uh, a short, like just write up of what, what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that we see is, is that these types of activities like are becoming more common, but it's still people who know the lingo who know the ins and outs that are participating. Yeah. So recognizing that knowledge comes in many forms and that it may not be communicated in like a typical way that like an urban planner or um, designer is going to immediately lead to, but yeah. that is so important. Underlining just in every project around the public realm and I mean a lot of other things that there are communities that need to be involved with this who yeah. aren't necessarily the, the most obvious choice. I think, you know, when we talk about engagement, there's this idea that if we open it to, or there has been this idea in the last 25 years that like, if we just let people do it, then the ones who are interested are gonna participate. And that really doesn't account for the fact that, you know, time is such a valuable resource. It's a finite resource, and that's the case for everybody. But if you work two jobs and you need to take three buses to get there and back, and you're looking after you know, a parent, child, or both, you have a lot less time available. And so, A, it's really important to get that person's um, perspective. Yeah. And you're looking for this lived experience expertise, so compensate for it. And so ensuring that you have space in your budgets for engaging people who would otherwise just not be able to. Yeah. And, and like at a really basic level, the the other side is like you know provide food. Hopefully, you can buy that food from local businesses, and um, ideally provide transit fare as well.
1: Like, can I just slow clap you right now? Just slow, slow clap. Y- you and me were two privileged white people. That like it's like we have got to realize that in order to serve, we have to meet people where they are. And I don't think it's fair. Just like you said, to just expect people to, you know, like, well, if you have interest, if you care about your community, show up because the barrier to entry is significantly higher for some people, right? Some people have flexible jobs and flexible hours and a car and a boss that's not going to fire them if they have to leave two hours early. And other people don't. They don't have any of those luxuries. And I really think, you know, getting to know your community whoever that may be, and figuring out how to honor, honor them in the process, rather than saying, like, well, you know, you're lucky we're asking, because that's how we create connected societies that build trust on a million levels outside of just design. So
0: I think it's really important. Um, and, and everybody has power. It's just a matter of whether we're, we're making the space for that to come through or not. Yeah. And you can really give... Or like, you know, take or seed power, depending on a lot of the decisions you make and and how you go about this work.
1: Amen. So kind of starting to wrap, one of the things that I'd love to hear is uh, that I sort of try and ask everyone is, what's the one thing you wish more people knew around designing for social connection that we could use to inform the ways that we design?
0: It's not about a flashy render or a cool project, like, object at the end. It's all the stuff that went into it that seems easy that probably wasn't. Yeah. Yes. Anything else that you want to share? I think it's a really important time to be, be like, understanding of each other and make the space to for people to to, you know really show what they mean when when they say something it's really easy to make assumptions now is a time where where we need uh, a significant amount of empathy for each other we need to have spaces that allow us to be empathetic as well we need to uh, enable people to live with dignity whatever their circumstances may be and we need to just. I think give people a little more time, little little more understanding than we might have recently. Yeah, um, it, it's really it, the only way we're going to kind of knit society together um, is if we accept that there are differences and, and try and find the ways to to bring them back together. Um, yeah, here in British Columbia, our public health officer um, Bonnie Henry ha- has really emphasized compassion as just so critical to mm-hmm. how this. Has unfolded, and we've got a slightly higher COVID rate right now. But you know, especially through the spring, she was asked, like, "What do you think it was that let us keep our rates so low?" And you know, was it like, you know, the communication? Was it the rigorous protocols that were in place? And she said, "No, it was love between people, and Mm -hmm. we have to just take care of each other." And I don't think that's going to end with a vaccine. That's something that we're going to need to think about for a long time ahead.
1: Just. Go ahead and drop the mic at that point. I got to ask, where can people find out more about you and the work of Happy City?
0: Um, yeah, you can check our website at happycity.com New website, dropping 2021. Oh, good to know. And, yeah, um, and then on social media. I don't use Twitter too much these days, but you can find me on there, um, Mitchell Reardon, um, or on LinkedIn. So, awesome. Thanks cool. so much for having me, I really appreciate it. It's been a lovely chat with you.
1: Thank you so much. It has been such a joy. I, uh, you did Canada proud by being far too kind and modest. So thank you. I really appreciate uh, the work that you're doing and I appreciate you sharing it and sharing your story.
0: So thank you. Thanks so much. It's been really nice.
1: Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Shared Space. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to subscribe wherever you're listening and head on over to Apple to give us a review. It really helps to spread the word and we really appreciate it. I hope that your day is filled with honest emotion, kindness, and connection. Thanks so much and take care.